Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I'm glad to be talking about movies with friends. Up first in controversies and non-troversies, theaters are back, baby! A Quiet Place Part 2 opened to $47 million over the three-day weekend uh, and $57 million over the four-day Memorial Day weekend. For those keeping score at home, the original film opened to $50 million, which means that we're right about back where we were before, kind of. I mean, technically, a sequel should gross a little more, but uh, we're, we're in good shape. Uh, Cruella, the other new release that's also available on Disney Plus's Premier Access tier, did $26.5 million this weekend as well. Um, and yet there is controversy. The big chains have decided to follow CDC guidelines and allow those who are fully vaccinated to ditch their masks indoors. While this is good science, it creates a problem. How to trust those who have taken off their masks are actually vaccinated. Um, But is this really a problem? Uh, After all, if you're vaccinated, you have nothing to worry about. Uh, If the other person is not vaccinated, well, that's on them. Um, And at this point in the pandemic, when vaccines are available to anyone who wants to get them, and we know the disease to be safer uh, than the flu for kids who aren't yet old enough to get them, is it really something we really need to get worked up in school marmish tones, as the AV Club did recently when it snarkily announced that the fully vaccinated and also liars can skip masks in movie theaters? Um, I, I don't love the phrase virtue signaling. It is used and abused in lots of dumb ways. But I would like to offer two pieces of anecdata uh, from my recent weekend that I think kind of highlight where we are in this whole thing. Um, uh, when I went to Kroger my local grocery store, uh, there are signs up that said the fully vaccinated could skip the mask wearing. And yet only about 10% of patrons were unmasked. Almost everybody still had their masks on, including almost all old people. Um, It was just everybody was still wearing their masks. Uh, In the dark of the movie theater, meanwhile, where I saw A Quiet Place Part 2 this weekend, I would say that only 10% of patrons actually were masked. Now, you get into weird things like you can take it off while eating, whatever. But uh, the the simple fact of the matter is that around 44% of Dallas residents have received at least one dose and a third are fully vaccinated, meaning that some folks are wearing masks when they don't need to, probably, and some folks aren't wearing masks when they probably still should. The numbers tilt depending on whether or not you can see the mask being worn. Um, I I will make a mild mild confession here. I've been fully vaccinated for a while now, uh, six weeks, something like that. And I had basically stopped wearing a mask in movie theaters even before the rule changed by AMC. Um, Because the the whole point of vaccines is you stop stop other people from getting sick and you don't get sick yourself. Uh, Peter, does that make me history's greatest monster? My flouting of the, the, the mask rules before I was officially allowed to flout them. No, Sonny. Obviously, you're history's greatest monster for many, many other reasons involving Zack Very Snyder. far down the list. So, Very far down the list. Uh, you know, I, I, I basically agree with you. I think that people who are worried about the lifting of mask mandates, both at the state level and at the private level, are, are wrong. Um, that said, I am sympathetic here. Uh, I, I think we should handle this with some you know, amount of sensitivity. Uh, I went into a grocery store the other time uh, the, over the weekend And for the first time in over a year, I saw people without masks, including a number of the employees who were not wearing masks in a grocery store here in Washington, D.C. And it was just it was a little bit jarring. I had not seen an announcement about this. I don't even know what the policy was or if there is one at this point. I mean, I know what the city's policy is, um, but I but, you know, I do not know what the grocery stores individually are doing. And so I just didn't expect it. I didn't know it was going to happen. 
And it is a little bit strange after 14, 15 months of seeing everybody basically mask, especially here in D.C., which is a, a pretty sort of high compliance masking culture. But uh, but that said, um, I think I think the, the people who are worried about this are wrong for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, for one thing, as you said, this is CDC guidance. Vaccinated people can be unmasked indoors, and and that's fine. Um, I, I I think you know. Also, uh, there are there are issues here with enforcement that people have not talked about. And so you brought up, well, you were not wearing your mask beforehand, and you weren't. And there were lots of people in the theater who already weren't wearing masks, in part because you can take your mask down when you're eating. And so what this does is it creates a kind of all-purpose excuse for right, like if you've got a bucket of popcorn in your hand, you don't have to wear a mask. And yes, as, as Peter can testify, I buy junior mints at every screening we go to, so I have an excuse not to wear a mask for most of a movie. And so there's an enforcement problem it, just in terms of like figuring out who actually needs to be wearing a mask or not, but also in terms of, I think it is a mistake to put this on theater employees and that to, to burden theater employees with enforcing mask mandates, which are just completely impossible to enforce inside a theater, even if you're like a, a kind of hardcore masker and think that this is too soon, you have to think about like, what is the alternative? The alternative is either saying that the employees have to do it or they're going to have to call someone. And calling someone means a private security guard or more likely the police. We do not need private security or police or ticket takers involved in 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 policing this for in inside theaters there's just no reason for it and i think that's going to be like doing that is asking theaters to do that expecting them to do that is i think just crazy and so the people who are the people who are who are worried about this they don't actually have a solution for getting people to wear masks inside theaters what they have is something that says look we're worried we're concerned i like i said i think we should be sympathetic and sensitive but there's just no way to make this work and also if you're vaccinated you're not spreading it, or you have a very low, very, very low chance of spreading it. And you have a very low chance of catching it yourself. You don't need to worry about it. Get vaccinated and go to the movies with your mask off. Alyssa, I, I, I want to just uh, highlight one thing that Peter said and get your take on this. What, one real issue here is the lack of any sort of real uniform guidance on any of this stuff. Like, for instance, when I went to the Kroger, uh, I only I just happened to notice a new sign that said, if you are fully vaccinated, you don't need the masks. And so I took it off. And I, when I went inside, I could definitely, I, I, it was, again, it was just, it was unusual. I was like, oh, I'm the only, I'm the only person unmasked here. And then I saw another unmasked person. I was like, yeah, you saw the sign too. Or maybe you're just a jerk. I don't know. One of, it's one of the two. Uh, so the, the, but it's, but it's, but it's a, it's a real problem, right? Why I mean, do you have to don't pick know... between sign seer and jerk? Yeah. Maybe but you could again, do both. You know, yeah. again, it's 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 possible, but I but it, but it's a problem, right, Alyssa? I mean, I think it's 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 an issue. Yeah, and I I mean, as the person who's probably like the biggest nanny stater on this podcast, um, and the you know like the internet's nice girl, um, I in general go through the world hoping as much as possible to make other people feel comfortable, or at least not to sort of grievously offend their sensibilities. And I think that part of what we're dealing with here is whiplash in social norms, right? I mean, I was lucky enough to get vaccinated comparatively early, given my age and gender and health and job. Um, so I've been vaccinated, fully vaccinated for three months. Um, and during that time, the science has become clearer that vaccinated people do not catch or 
transmit the coronavirus. And it's worth being clear that that was not something that was immediately clear, right? The immediate data that we had when the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines um, it was likely, but it wasn't right, known but it, for certain. The data that we had when the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines um, were authorized for emergency use was that people who had been vaccinated did not, for the most part, exhibit symptomatic illness. That is different from saying that they were not infected at all or that people who were infected did not spread the disease. So during the time that I've been vaccinated, it has become clearer just how good these vaccines are. And just as a sort of a side detour, the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna and a couple other candidates that are in development, are far and away the best vaccines that have ever been developed by a significant margin. I mean, if you look just at- Just in terms of, when you say best, you mean in terms of yes. effectiveness at solving the problem they are trying to solve it, at, yes. at reducing I mean, the spread and transmission of the virus. Right. I mean, the, you know, the polio and measles vaccines people get as kids are very effective, but they're very effective in part because we have achieved herd immunity against those diseases through vaccination. Uh, we, The flu vaccine that you get every year may range from 30 to 60 percent effective in making you less likely to get sick if you get sick. We have just never had vaccines that take your chance of getting a serious disease in a scenario where you would be likely to catch it down 95%. And that's something that I think is hard to assimilate to. And so you have a situation where for a long time, because people could not get vaccinated because the vaccines either didn't exist or weren't authorized, other people's choices affected you a lot. Um, And if you were immunocompromised, if you had young kids, if you had to work in person, Someone else's mask wearing, someone else's honesty or lack thereof could be really serious for you. And it is hard to let go of that when you've had to adopt a new norm so stringently and so quickly, right? I mean, most of us, with the exception of, you know, say when we go off to school for the first time as children, do not have to adopt a set of norms that is so radically different so quickly and with the sense that the consequences are so high. And having done that, you know, it's hard to let go of. And it is also hard to assimilate, you know, the information about exactly how good the vaccines are because they are unprecedented. And, you know, as I have written and said, the thing about the vaccines is that after sort of 15 months of feeling like other people's decisions affect you enormously, the vaccines take that away. Um, And so it can be true that someone is behaving like an ass and lying about whether they're vaccinated. But if you are vaccinated, it no longer matters. Um, And there's another important caveat there. I mean, there are people for whom these vaccines don't work. If you are immunosuppressed, if you have have uh, have had certain kinds of cancer treatments, the even the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines just do not appear to produce protective antibodies in some of these people. And so well, they you know, produce it, far fewer protective yes, antibodies. Yeah, um, and they, they may... It does I mean, look like in most cases they produce some level of resistance, but it's definitely but not, not the protect- 95 to 96% efficacy that we see uh, yes. for, for most folks. Yes. And so, you know, if you are personally immunosuppressed, if you have someone in your family who is immunosuppressed, I can understand why this is a frustrating situation where, you know, I think it is difficult to feel like the rest of the world is getting back to business as normal and being told you can't do that because other people's you know, sort of personal freedoms are more important. I, I am sympathetic to that to a certain extent. There are, But that's always going to be true. Of I course, mean, we're never, we're never going to get to 100 percent vaccination. Of course. 
Um, but I'm saying there are some people for whom this moment is less liberating than others. Um, and that's, it's just, it's hard. So can and I ask so, you guys, oh, sorry. Oh, if I can just finish, yeah, yeah. you know, as the goody two shoes of this podcast Nerd. and the person who has been vaccinated among the three of us for the longest, I have found it really challenging to give up the mask, not because I am afraid of getting sick. Um, although, you know, when the people we relied on for childcare were still unvaccinated, I wanted to be respectful of them, but because I don't want to look like a jerk. I don't want to be a jerk. Um, I don't want to be, you know, the person who is cruel or self-centered and because mask wearing has been so thoroughly coded i think in the areas where at least peter and i live as the thing you do is you as if you're a decent person it is hard to be the person who takes the first step and says yeah i believe in the science and you know i need to take sort of a stand for that and affirm that i believe in the science and can follow the guidelines that say that i can do this because it makes me look like a jerk. It's hard to be the he- ahead of sort of a a major change in norms. And I felt not, that, not, not me. Strip that mask off as I walked into the Kroger. I was like, I'm done with you. I For burned sure. it in front of people. But I was Sonny, like, no you also masks. you also live no in the free masks. state of Texas where, it's true. The, free where state the norms of Texas. are actually quite different. And this is a thing yeah. that yeah. that I have just had to explain to people um who don't live in Washington, DC, or sometimes to people who live in Washington in the DC or New York City, that like there are really deeply two different Americas when it comes to mass culture. And there have been for months and months and months, long before CDC guidance changed, and even to some extent before the vaccines were available to anyone. Um, outside of uh, major blue state metro areas, you had much, much less consistent uh, mask wearing, in particular outside, whereas in Washington, D.C., San Francisco, New York City, you would go for a walk by yourself in the middle of the night, and if you happen to see somebody two blocks away who was also out by themselves walking their dog at 11.30 p.m., it was nearly certain that that person, not near anyone else, knowing that they would not be near anyone else, would be wearing a mask. Uh, The question I wanted to ask you guys uh, was actually just about kids, because this is one of the objections that keeps getting brought up that I see online is, well, look, currently, I believe it's kids 12 and under cannot are not approved to get the vaccine. I believe the Pfizer vaccine is likely to be approved for kids much younger than 12 by uh, like around the end of the summer, but we're not there yet. And this is something that people have brought up, um, especially since kids' movies are a thing that parents take their kids to and like are going to be a big part of the summer movie season. Yeah. I mean, you know, my kid wears a mask at nursery school. um, And, you know, I think that's the right decision in in part because you know they're teaching like one of the things you learn in nursery school is norms and kids need to wear masks right now um when we're outside of the playground i would say we're among a minority of parents in dc who are fully unmasked at the playground and let our kid be unmasked at the playground as well um you know and i am i mean again i'm it's hard to take risks with your kid um and you know my husband and i talked about this and you know especially for, with the, with the new research out this week that the kids who have this serious um multi-system inflammatory condition that sometimes results from pediatric covid they appear not to suffer long-term damage um and that was the thing that was really scary right i mean if you you know with kids even if there's a small risk of something if that thing is very bad um 
people weight that more heavily, even if they shouldn't necessarily. Um, and, you know, there's been a, a lot of controversy over um, this Brown professor, Emily Oster, who's written a couple of um, really well-regarded sort of evidence-based pregnancy and parenting books. I've relied on them. They were amazing. Um, She's anyway, great. And she, She's- and she has done a really good job of trying to sort of talk people through decision-making frameworks. And people have gotten really angry at her for – you know, emphasizing the areas in which she thinks kids should have some freedom and, you know, the risks that the CDC should be willing to kind of sign off on and take. Um, you know, I, th- I think that is going to be something that's really up to every individual family. I don't, you know, and I, I also think that people who are taking their kids to movies in the summer are probably going to be a little bit more likely to encourage their kids to wear masks. Um and, you know, when I am in a situation with my kid where my kid needs to wear a mask, I wear a mask, too, because, you know, you can't tell a three-year-old that the three-year-old has to do something that mommy and daddy don't have to do. Um, I mean, other than, you know, wear a, a buckle while riding in the supermarket cart because then the parent is pushing. But, um, I mean, I do it because it's modeling good behavior. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a trickier summer for parents. Um, but not everybody is a parent, and you have to weigh – you know, the various things that you need to weigh the needs of kids and families against the needs of a a society as a whole. And I think this is an area where, you know, there are things kids can do other than go to the movies. They can go to splash parks. They can go to pools. They can go for walks outside. They can go to the playground. They can go to camp, especially now that the CDC's masking requirements for camp have gotten saner. And so, you know, if the thing that kids can't do this summer is go to Cruella unmasked, I'm okay with that. <laughs> no child should see Cruella, but that's well, uh, another segment. <laughs> yes. I, also, uh, no adult. On uh, on Peter's point, I'll I'll be quick because we're we're running a little long here. Uh, I our, my kids uh, do not wear masks outside because there's there's just no point. Um, and I, I am frankly not super, super concerned about them catching COVID in the sense that it is, again, it's, it is just less dangerous than other like common ailments that they could get, like the flu. I like, I, I look at the, the, the numbers and I'm just like, this is not, you can't stop living your life, even though for a brief moment. I mean, I remember when, when the, when the, we had a early decision to make in, I want to say it was May or June of last year about whether or not we would send our youngest to the to daycare, which he goes to this daycare private school thing. And we had to decide if we were going to send him for the summer. And at that point, again, it was like May or June. We were like, "Uh, I guess we're going to keep him home. I guess we're going to keep him home. So he was home with us all summer and it was kind of a nightmare. And like we, you know, it was just it, it 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 was not good for him. He was not interacting with other children, you know, regularly. It was it was not good for us, um, you know, his parents. It just like it just it didn't it didn't work. So we've been we've been pretty since then. We've been a bit more permissive, and I think uh, smartly, or in ways that are smart, as opposed to you know just like having COVID parties or whatever. I I think that was an urban legend. That never actually happened, right? That was. I mean, to be fair, teenagers are very stupid, so it's, you know, it's possible. I look forward to the Blumhouse production of COVID Party. COVID Party. It's going to be a great, great movie in 2023. It's going to win all the Oscars. Cost five million bucks to make. Sounds terrible. 223 million domestic. 
so what do we think? Is it uh, is the introduction of a mask honor system at movie theaters a controversy or a controversy, Peter? I think some people think it's controversial, but I don't. Like I think it is. I think the that's all I'm asking yes, for here. I do, I just, I do yeah, not think it is controversial. controversy. Okay. People, Alyssa. but other people thinking it's a controversy might be a controversy. Um, I think the decision is uh, correct, but controversial. Uh, I think it is mostly a controversy. Mostly a controversy. Uh, all right. If you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about movies that earn their lengthy running times. What must a film do to justify epic status? We'll fi- we'll discuss that uh, this week. And now on to the main event, Cruella. Cruella, like Maleficent and the Joker before it, is a live-action effort to rehabilitate the image of a notorious cartoon villain. Uh, we all know Cruella DeVille is the lady who wants to skin 101 Dalmatian puppies in an effort to make a pretty coat. Um, what this movie presupposes is maybe she didn't. Maybe she didn't. Uh I'll say one good thing about this movie first. Uh, I think Emma Stone is genuinely delightful as Cruella slash Stella, the you know original original name of the little girl. Um, even if she is playing her more like a weird mix of Michelle Pfeiffer's split personality Catwoman uh, and take your picks Joker in grease paint than the cartoon iteration of Cruella DeVille we all know and hate. Um, I'll be honest, I kind of hated Cruella the movie. Uh, in part, uh, that's because it just goes on and on, clocking in at 50% longer than its source uh, material, source movie. Um, and in part, it's because Cruella DeVille, as played by Emma Stone, doesn't really have anything to do with Cruella DeVille as envisioned in the Disney cartoon that this is ostensibly a prequel or reimagining of. Um, you know, partly... Partly, I don't like it because it's filled with obvious 1960s and 1970s needle drops that are so obvious they'd make Zack Snyder blush. Uh, mostly, though, it's just the sloppiness of the storytelling here that I don't like. Again, this is a movie that takes nearly 45 minutes to get to the central conflict of the picture, which has to do with Cruella's fashion battle with the Baroness, a snooty designer-slash-credit-hog played with limp evil by Emma Thompson. Um, there was some minor controversy on, on Twitter, as there always is, about who this movie is for. A female critic said that male critics who don't like it just don't get it, man. It's not for them. It's for the tweens and, and the fashionistas. And maybe... I don't know, maybe that's true, but the the only person this movie really seems to be for is the average Disney shareholder. Uh, it has nothing terribly interesting to say about the world of fashion. Did you know that attitude matters, guys, and manipulating the press? Whoa, big news. Uh, nothing terribly interesting to say about the inner lives of its characters either. It just kind of sits there waiting to vacuum up money. Owed to the content based on well-known IP that we all love to give our hard-earned cash to. Um, and the most, again, the most aggravating thing is it doesn't even have the decency to be greedy, uh, efficiently. Um, Alyssa, what am I missing here? What have I, what have I gotten wrong about Cruella? Not missing much. Um, I, I have to say, and again, this credit for this goes to my husband, but if you're going to make a 101 Dalmatians origin story, the obvious thing is to make a weird sci-fi movie about the origins of the Twilight Bark, the, uh, you know, communication system that the dogs use to talk to each other at rapid speed all across England. That's awesome. Um, I do not think this movie works at all, really. Um, save for one thing, I think the costuming work in it is amazing and actually tells a much more interesting story about how fashion works than any of the text of the movie does. You, you know, you have Cruella, even as a kid, kind of adopting this punk aesthetic that 
took a while to trickle up to high fashion in British society. You have the Baroness, uh, Emma, who played by Emma Thompson, initially clothed in the 70s in these sort of holdover, very kind of crisp, sleek, um, sophisticated styles from the 60s that kind of borrow from Jackie Kennedy. And there was a real sort of conflict in the British fashion and art system at this time between the sort of polish of that society style and the rising punk aesthetic, right? I mean, the Sex Pistols were basically created, they were the creation of an entrepreneur who saw something kind of coming up from the streets and imported it into Britain's pop music scene. Um, Tina Brown actually has a really interesting aside in her biography of Princess Diana about how adopting punk aesthetics actually became the thing for debutantes to do in the late 70s and early 80s to show that they weren't taking the idea of the London season terribly seriously. Like there were actually girls who were showing up at their, you know, official debut parties on motorcycles in punk gear. Um, And so you see, you know, how fashion kind of assimilates ideas from the margins and the underground into, you know, the high levels of couture, department stores like Liberty, etc. And it's fascinating how by the, you know, the climax of the movie, the Baroness is finally adopting styles that borrow from disco, while Cruella herself is on from sort of disco and punk to goth, uh, which will become the sort of outsider aesthetic of the 80s. And so that whole story is told in the costumes, but not effectively sort of in the text at all. Um, and, you know, I it's just sort of a silly movie, right? I mean, I'm sorry, but like Krilla's origin story is that her birth mother is like tipped over a cliff by a bunch of Dalmatians. Well, I mean, not her birth mother. Her, her adoptive mother. The, her sorry, adoptive her adoptive, adoptive mother, mother right, right, is tipped the over a cliff. good woman who raised her. Is her. Is tipped over a cliff by a bunch of Dalmatians. I mean, that's yeah. ridiculous. It's so silly. Um, and it just, I mean, everything in the movie kind of operates on that emotional level. And... The movie is also, I mean, Peter, you mentioned that, you know, this has nothing to do with how Cruella becomes someone who at 101 Dalmatians, like, wants to skin puppies for high fashion. Um, I think the movie does not at the fact that she could clearly become that person, right? I mean, but it's just not willing to commit to her being an actual villainess, right? I mean, she becomes this kind of emotionally abusive, monstrous person who is blackmailing the only friend she had in elementary school and doing just really doing and asking really horrible things of these guys who took her in as a child and who are effectively her chosen family. And the movie just sort of has her say, sorry, okay, now let's go back to doing horrible things together. And they just, but both they and the movie forgive her in a way that is kind of unforgivable. Yeah, yeah, Alyssa. Let me. I want to jump in here just for for a sec because uh, what struck what struck me as a thing that absolutely does not work about this movie um, is is a similar thing that did not work about Joker, a movie I liked more than either of you two. But they really the 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 filmmakers here are terrified of having her do things uh, that are that are actually bad and could be could could actually alienate the the audience, like to the point where. In the first ten minutes, the Dalmatians push her mother, or you know, her not her not mother, over the cliff, right? And then at the end of the film, she's they're they're now her dogs. There, she's now she now actually loves Dalmatians. She she has adopted these dogs, and it, it just it struck me as like a remarkable cheat 
Like a like, like it's not, not a, it's not nothing, even a there's cheat. Nothing it's earned a about it. It's just it it is it's incredibly just, it just timid. No, I mean this is this is the big problem with the movie is that the Cruella Deville of of the cartoon of the 101 Dalmatians cartoon is a deeply sick and disturbed individual, uh, a character who is who is just revolting and who is only sort of deliciously interesting to watch because she's a villain in a cartoon. And the cartoon, the, the, the fact that it is a cartoon um, creates a distance and re, uh, sort of allows for that level of villainy. Uh, and I think there's like, in some ways, it's like Disney made the correct decision not to make her a puppy skinner who wanted to steal and murder puppies just to make beautiful coats out of them because that's a horrible and revolting thing to be. On the other hand, that's what Cruella DeVille is. What's the point? Right. If so, she's not going to be so, that, what's the so point? So this is, this is, this I think is the better question to ask than who is this movie for? But what in the hell is this movie trying to say? What is the point of it? It is, it is absolutely determined not to let Cru Cruella of the movie Cruella become the Cruella DeVille of 101 Dalmatians because to do so would be to completely revolt and turn off your audience. And that's something that Disney simply cannot yeah. do. And I think that there is an interesting movie to be made about, you know, sort of the elevation of aesthetics is the highest value, right? Because that's sort of what makes Cruella, of, that's the motivating force that makes Cruella DeVille um, a villainess is that she, I mean, she doesn't see that dogs and the people who love them have worth outside of the potential that they have to be converted into high fashion. Or even and, people, right? And she just yeah. dehumanizes absolutely every, not just the yeah. puppies, but absolutely every person One. around her. And that yeah. that's an that makes for an interesting villain. It makes right. for a completely revolting and unforgivable unfor human yeah. being. Yeah, and the, but, but there is an interesting movie you can make about the sort of intoxicating nature of fashion and its treatment as the highest good. I mean, when I was preparing for this podcast, I actually looked up the sequel to the novel that 101 Dalmatians is based on, which sounds incredibly weird. I mean, it literally features Sirius the dog star coming to Earth and offering all dogs a chance to go with him into the heavens to avoid a possible nuclear war. But part of what's interesting about it is that Cruella de Vila has become sort of obsessed with like the new range of synthetic fabrics. Like she's moved on from fur, but she's like totally entranced by something else. Um, and there is something, you know, there is something you can say about the treatment of sort of what's beautiful and who gets to determine what's beautiful as something that can be narcotic and warping. And The Devil Wears Prada actually does that really effectively. Um, well, and this movie say, does not. I, I referenced The Devil Wears Prada in my review, and I'm sure many other people did as well, because it is it is the obvious counter to this film insofar as it takes the world of fashion and the idea of fashion and actually explains how it works. And and we see Andy, the character played by, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, America's Sweetheart. Uh, um, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway, thank you. Uh, as, as somebody who falls under the sway of this idea of like, oh, it is nice to look uh, attractive and wear, you know, nice hot couture type clothing. Um, and this movie just, I like... I, again, I you you're right, Alyssa. You can kind of see the story being told through the uh, through the evolution of the costumes, but it really 
it doesn't it doesn't have anything to say about the broader society. There's just nothing. There's nothing. There's no there there. Well, we live in a society, to, man. You also have to know a lot about fashion in the first place, which I don't claim to know an enormous amount, but I know something to see that story being told. Right? It's not. It's something that you notice if you know to look for it. Um, but it's not really part of the story. I uh, I just object to the movie's appropriation of punk rock culture, given that there is literally no punk rock in the movie. The the closest you actually get is that one sort of quasi cover that she ridiculously stages on a uh, outside of uh, one of the villains. There is one clash right? song. It's a you there's one. like the Stooges. It um it, it, she they played uh, I want to be your dog by the Stooges, but there's basically no punk in a movie filled with pop needle drops. There's there's nothing that sort of that is like meaningful or real punk or like traces that evolution at all. Again, because Disney is fundamentally timid about showing the rough edges of a character, a place, or a time, especially in a, in a uh, a movie that is inspired by one of their animated children's classics. But that's I mean, but that's sort of an interesting question. I don't know the extent to which Vivian Westwood, who was the designer, who was really sort of the progenitor of high fashion inspired by punk in britain i don't know how much crossover there was between her and the actual music scene um or even between someone like alexander mcqueen who borrowed from um a lot of punk aesthetic and some of his earlier work although his work got much stranger and more interesting as time went on but for a movie for a movie that sort of claims to be about the 1970s london punk scene there should be a lot of punk rock and there really isn't a lot of punk rock in it. And again, this, you know, I, I keep calling this movie timid, and I really think it is, but it's a weird kind of timid, which is the kind that thinks it's being bold. And uh, director Craig Gillespie, you know, has said that he, you know, that when he brought on his department heads, he told them, oh, we're not making a traditional Disney movie. And he would show them a bunch of images of 1970s punk rock and, you know, sort of characters in London. And this is the vibe that I'm trying to create. And, you know, he just, kept saying, well, look, we don't want to create a movie that feels like a Disney movie. And so what they ended up with is a movie that I think it doesn't quite feel like a Disney movie and some some of the kind of superficial stylistic overtones, but then can't do anything that really meaningfully departs from the Disney protagonist formula where everybody in the end has to be essentially likable and can't do anything that's truly unforgivable. Yeah. I mean, I, I like I again, I, I just... I watch this movie and I'm like, why? Why is this happening? And the only reason I can settle on is, well, these movies make a lot of money. This sort of thing makes makes a lot of Maleficent money. Because Maleficent nothing, nothing did really well. Nothing more punk than making money for the, the, mouse, the mouse house. Although, to be fair, again, that was the motivating force behind the creation of the Sex Pistols, who were a, like are one of the embodiments of British punk and also a completely commercial creation. Yeah, I mean, capitalism is at the core of punk rock. Capitalism is is everything. That's all we. That's the only reason we are here. That's why we do this podcast. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, what what else is there to talk about with with this? Am I am I am I are, are we out of are we out of things to say about Cruella? I, I, a, I mean, a not good movie. I am comfortable saying as a lady who is interested in fashion and also a lover of Emma Stone that Cruella is for no one other than the Disney shareholder. This is not like. This is not a problem of you being a dude and me being a lady. This is a problem of Disney trying to make a movie that it fundamentally should not make. 
I think that's right. I think the the other sort of interesting note that I came upon when I was uh, researching this was that uh, the director said that when he came on board on this project, the story beats were already in place. And so he was brought in basically to do sort of little detail work and like to capture the vibe and do the stylistics. But the story had already been sort of put together and approved by the by the suits. And this was a suits driven story that that and it so feels like it and there's this weird kind of uh, clash between between the director's stylistic ambitions which are at least right he's trying to do something that doesn't feel like a a conventional disney film um but he's got what ultimately is a a very very conventional disney story to work with and he just couldn't escape the uh, the limitations of that well, that's a bummer because he directed I, Tanya, yep. which is great and genuinely uncomfortable. And Ellen Brush McKenna, who's one of the writers who worked on the movie, is one of the creative forces behind Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which sticks the landing on having a character who does things that are genuinely unforgivable while still being a sort of an interest, a much more interesting person and more sympathetic um, than Cruella actually ends up being. Um so also, a lot of talent, one, sorry, bad result. One one last thing before we go. Can I just can I just like say that the person I might feel worst worst for in this whole thing is Paul Walter Hauser, who is saddled with just an absolutely terrible Cockney accent. It, like I like him a lot, uh, and I like him in in things like I Tanya, for instance, or Richard Jewell. But he has done no favors in this movie by what he is asked to do. Should not have been in it. Talk to your agent about that one, guy. I um, um, I think right. he actually came across pretty well. He does much better with the um, comic sidekick role, I think, than the other person in in the other comic sidekick role, uh, Joel, Fry, Joel Fry, as Jasper uh, Jasper Baden, I think is the character's <laughs> name, right? Which, good lord, Baden, <laughs> right? And I I think Paul uh, Paul Walter Hauser actually gives a performance that is watchable rather than one that just sort of. Uh, fills, he, he sound, you know, sounds ridiculous. Space. Sounds it doesn't it does it sounds bad. It's uh, I'm sorry I can't I can't let that pass. All right, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Cruella, Alyssa? Thumbs down. Peter. Thumbs down, but it's a more interesting failure than other recent Disney remakes. Maleficent is a million times better than this. This is. I mean, Maleficent is at least trying to do something like tell an actual origin story for Maleficent. We didn't do an episode on Mulan, but guys, I watched Mulan. Yeah, but that's not that's not a that's not a that's not a Disney villain reimagining. That's just one of their standard live action remakes. But it's one of the, it's the live action connected to classic cartoon. I'm thinking. That... I, see, this is a slightly this is a slightly different thing. This is more anyway. Maleficent was a million times better than this. Uh, thumbs down on Cruella, a bad movie. Um, All right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out uh, our members-only bonus episode on movies that earn their lengthy running times. Uh, And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 